It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Welcome back to the Kick to Kick podcast. Charlie, we are talking about 1978 still. We are. We are halfway through. We're halfway there. Whoa, leaving on a prayer. <laughs> um, now, before we get stuck into anything today, I've got a few little bits and pieces I want to share. Please. Uh, the first is we had a listener reach out by the name of Andrew Barker because we mentioned... We did. Um, this is great. We yeah. mentioned the goalkeeper's signalling a, a ball had hit the post. So he reached out and said that his dad was the one who... Popularised that, that, started yeah. that, yeah. So um, he says that his uh, his father, Kevin Barker, who was a goal umpire from 1970 to 1981, he was umpiring a game possibly late in 77 or early in 78, and the ball grazed the post and he signalled a point from next to the goalpost as they did back then and he pointed up at the post. Yeah. Signalling, that's, that's why I've called it a point. The following week at the goal umpires meeting on the Thursday night, the coaches of the umpires, Alan Nash, asked him in front of the group why he pointed at the post and... Uh, Kevin Barker said he wanted the football world to know why he was signalling a point and that he wasn't making a mistake. So Alan Nash then decided that any time the ball hits the post, the goal umpire will tap the post so everyone knows why it's a post. Great. Why it's a point, sorry. Why it's a point, yeah. So you, it's clear, even though it went through the goals, if you can't see it or yep. whatever, that that's what happened. Yeah. Yep. Love that. I love that little, that we've got that tidbit. How fantastic yeah. is that? Uh, Thank like you. Little... Uh, thanks for writing in. Yeah, so there's little incidents like that, which, I mean... Not that we brushed over it, but... Well, we like, don't have the detail of it. Yeah. And it's probably and now, not written down anywhere, right? Now, now we've got it. these anecdotes. So, I love, love that. It. It's great. Um, two other things I want to share with you, Charlie. Please. This is from uh, Alan Aylett's book. Two, two bits of league news, I suppose it is. Um, the first is that a Alan Aylett was made the president of the National Football League. Oh. So he's he's uh, president of the VFL and the National Football League. That's really surprising considering the, what's been going on with the two sort of mm. league comps. One of the first things he did was he Closed used down. his casting vote to stop the VFA from gaining uh, reaffiliation with the NFL. Ah. Saying that Victoria should have only one voice. Also during 1978, a new offshoot of the VFL was formed, mm-hmm. uh, of which Alan Aylett was the chairman. The Australian Football Championship, which is a company born out of need to prevent VFL teams from being exploited by the National Football League. Oh, okay. So really taking control of yeah, slowly that just... national vision that, that's kind of coming clearer. Yeah. The VFL is making moves to make sure they are in charge of that vision. They're really sort of covering all their bases, aren't they? Just slowly. It's a pincer movement around the really N- is. NFL, isn't it? Yeah. Just taking all the oxygen out of, the, out mm-hmm. of it. Very interesting. So, yes, I thought it was important we, we mentioned those because we didn't well, mention it last week. Because this is, and this is all bubbling under the surface at the moment. And probably at the time, a lot of people would not have realised that all this was going on. Like surface level. No, not at all. But now, and once hinds- with hindsight, we can look back and see how all those little moves have created the AFL that we know now. Oh, yeah, and there's many more. That come. Yeah, like once yes. the 80s click over. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely really picks up momentum it does do you want to take us up the ladder i would absolutely love to so let's start from that uh bottom again so 12th we had melbourne 11th footscray 10th essendon 9th fitzroy 
8th South Melbourne, 7th Richmond and 6th St Kilda just missing out that uh, that draw between the Saints and Richmond um, killing their chances there unfortunately mm. so that takes us up into 5th spot and our first finalist uh, who was Geelong with 12 wins and 10 losses 102.3% coached by Rod Olsen again and captained by Ian Nankervis, taking over from his brother. There we go. Yeah. Um, round two, the Cats made use of the interchange rule to rest their ruckman in turn, so they were well prepared to take down Carlton Ruckman, Percy Jones, remembering they can interchange That's people right. on and off now. Yeah. Um, and this seemed to work in their favour as the Cats opened their account for the season by beating the Blues by 14 points. Round three, the Dogs had a new coach, and we've talked about that already, we but have. this did not worry the Cats, who control the hard-fought first half. Uh, but 12 goals to four in the second half saw them earn an easy win in the end. Donahue kicked six after only having one kick in the whole first half. In round four, the Tigers took it right up to the Cats at Cardinia Park, but when Geelong's ruckman Rod Blake lay motionless after a clash with Neil Baum, the Cats stirred in a seven-goal to two third quarter saw them take control of the game and run out 27-point winners. Now, some vision from uh, that was the season that was. Round five, in a loss to the Saints, Larry Donahue kicks a point against yep. the Saints but there's vision of him arguing that it went through for a goal and he somehow convinces the umpire that this is true and the decision is overturned it's amazing when do you ever see that no, happen never <laughs> never um, after the Cats had suffered four straight losses they welcomed the Swans to cut in your park in round nine and the Cats led from the start to finish had to survive the wretched luck of hitting the post three times in the first four, 40 minutes but still won by 14 points Donahue kicking four goals four they got over the Lions in round 11 at the junction. Then they went to Victoria Park and beat the Pies comprehensively by 40 points. They won the game across the centre where Michael Turner, Robert Neal and David Clark shed 60 kicks and 30 hand passes. Manson destroyed Thompson in the ruck and Donahue finished with another four goals. In round 15, Geelong beat the Dogs by two goals. Uh, Donahue was rarely sighted early in the game uh, but really came alive later on, uh, kicking all four last quarter goals to help the Cats hold on. Round 16, the Cats did what they needed to by beating the Saints at Cardinia Park. Donahue with another six. Round 18, the winner for the Cats against Melbourne was the brilliance of Peter Doyle, who returned from a serious knee injury for his first game in two years. And he dominated. Uh, Melbourne kicked 5-4 in the third term to lead by a single goal, but in a tight last quarter, it was Robert Neal returning off the bench that was the winner. With his side a point behind at the 24-minute mark, he stormed off the interchange bench to receive a ball over the top and kicked the goal, which put the Cats back in front and won them the game by six points. In round 19, Geelong's wet weather performance had improved and they were able to win on a muddy cut in your park against the Bombers. Um, Neil Turner and the Nankervis brothers and Doyle displayed a snappy handball system uh, and that set up the win in the first quarter. They ran out seven-point winners. In round 20, under some great August sun, the Cats and the Swans put on a goal fest in the opening quarter with 17 goals between them. Uh, this continued throughout with the Cats holding a slight edge, kicking, kicking nine straight. The final scores, Charlie, were 167 to 155 with 50 goals, 22 behinds kicked in total for the match. Massive. Donahue with eight, Paul Serra with five. Yeah, be a fun one to watch. Yeah, wouldn't it? All attack. 
Cats were denied a win in round 21 when the Hawks' winning goal kicked by John Henry was touched as it bounced through. Still called a goal, though, which the Cats vehemently argued. Oh, killer. They lost by two points. In oh. uh, round 22, Geelong was a desperate team against the Lions, knowing a loss would mean they'd miss the finals. From the first bounce, they were more desperate, and only its poor accuracy kept the opposition in the team. Uh, Robert Scratchanier was one of the best for the Cats on the wing, beating several opponents with great pace. Donahue finished with seven goals, five. Ruckman David Manson was reported and suspended for striking the Lions captain, which was a big talking point in the week that followed. Uh, Coach Rod Olsen went into bat for his player, saying Manson was 15 yards away from the incident, but the report struck and he was suspended. Oh, so he's saying he wasn't even there. Yeah. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, so not a bad season from from Geelong. We had Larry Donoghue being their lead goal kicker, of course, with 95, and the Kaji Greaves Award uh, medal in 78 went to David Clark for the second time. So not bad. Uh, So moving up the ladder into our top four, in fourth spot we have the Blues with 14 wins and eight losses, 116.8%. Captained by Robert Walls and coached by Ian Stewart. Yes, interesting season at Carlton. Here's some debutants as well. Um, We've got Warren Jones, Peter Fitzpatrick and Peter McConville. So yes, Peter McConville, a wonderfully versatile and consistent player. Uh, Peter James McConville was recruited recruited from the Bendigo League Club Golden Square in 1977. His grandfather Tom had played 35 games for Melbourne in the 20s. McConville's greatest strength as a footballer was his aerial prowess, although allied to this was an impressive versatility which made it difficult to decide with any certainty which position suited him best. Real utility. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so I'm going to give a few quotes here from Robert Walls, who spoke about his falling out with the coach and, and the Blues. Mm. Um, they lost their first game to the Tigers, and Robert Walls say, says that uh, Ian Stewart came in as coach and he fell out with him pretty well after the first game of the season. They got beaten by Richmond on the Monday night after the game. He pulled Walls aside and said he didn't try and he didn't want him as captain. Oh, God. Just didn't want him in the team. That's not ideal. No, not at all. Um, they lost the second round match as well. So after two losses, the selectors swung the axe for the match coming out with Melbourne. Peter Jones, Mark McClure and Phil Pinnell uh, being dropped into the reserves and Captain Robert, Mo- Robert Walls moved to the back pocket. The Blues led most of the day and ran out 13-point winners. However, following this match, Charlie, um, Ian Stewart took ill and was admitted to hospital. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, abruptly resigned his position and did all he could to avoid the press. In the aftermath, the club was left to fend off many questions, uh, doggedly sticking to the excuse of ill health as the cause of his demise. Details of the ailment, ailment were never actually explained and no one actually knows. Well, someone knows the full story, but it's not yeah, really out there. Heard it, yeah. yeah. Um, so while this was happening, it was former champion Serge Silvani who stepped in as caretaker coach from round four and would also coach the Blues in round five and six, which were all losses. Um, Robert Walls were counts after round five. He remembered driving into Carlton on a Tuesday night and he'd made up his mind that he was what he was doing. He walked in, left his bag in the car and said to Jack Rout, chairman of selectors, I know the coach doesn't want me. There's no point in me staying here. I'm going to walk out the door. And he did. He left and ended up at Fitzroy. Yeah, wow. Back to the coaching situation though. So looking for a replacement for the coach, Lee Matthews was approached and he was very close to actually moving. That would have been huge. What a, what a sliding doors moment that is. Yeah, mm. God. Club president George Harris wanted Josh, uh, John Kennedy, but he was still unavailable. And still under contract, right? Yes, we, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and they seemed initially reluctant to appoint Jezelenko, a reluctance that Jezelenko himself seemed to share after initially rejecting the position. Yeah. But he finally took over as captain coach in round six, and the Blues were second last, barely yeah. ahead of last place Footscray on percentage with only one win from six games. But Jezza seemed to be an instant hit with the players, which resulted in their second win of the season. Blues were far too good for Collingwood, and Jezza played no small part in the win. Nor did Robert Rod Ashman, who was seen hugging Jezza at the final siren, um, Ashman kicking the winning goal, which made the Magpies' chances a victory impossible. They won by 17 points. And what we'll see now is a remarkable turnaround. Round eight, Carlton hung on to defeat Fitzroy by two points in a thriller at Princess Park, and Blues rover Trevor Keogh was largely responsible for the victory. Uh, Keogh gave a great kick-winning display and continually drove the Blues into attack. In round nine, Jezza was leading his team superbly against North, inflicting the Roos' first loss of the season. Many Carlton attacks were started from the attacking play from the halfback line by Jezza and Rod Galt caused the North defence many headaches. Uh, round 11 against St Kilda was Rod, As- Rod Austin's 100th game. Rod, Spook, Galt and Peter Brown feasted on St Kilda. The Blues won by 100. Brown with six goals and Blues had actually 50 shots on goal. The Blues had 50 shots on goal. Yeah. Unbelievable. At uh, Princess Park in round 12, Carlton continued their improved form with a great 43-point victory over Richmond, and it was centre-half forward Mark McClure who provided the spark for the win. He took some brilliant marks and capped off the game with five goals. He was well-supported with a hard-running game by wingman Tony Pickett. This was the last of Bruce Dawes' 160 games in a row. Oh, Okay. Mm. Round 13, Ruckman Peter Jones reveled in the muddy conditions against Geelong at Cardinia Park. He won most of the tap outs, took several strong marks and initiated many forward thrusts. He was the main factor behind the 10-point win in a closely fought match. Um, They beat the Ds in round 15. Round 17, they continued on their merry way with a 24-point win over the Hawks at Princess Park. Vin Cataggio playing a significant role in the victory using his pace and ball handling skills to considerable advantage and set up many attacking moves. They rolled over the Pies in round 18, and now they eyed off a double chance for the finals, which would be remarkable considering from, the way said, they started. One, yeah. One five. yeah. Round 19, on a miserable wet day against Fitzroy, it was memorable for the dominance of Carlton Rover Rod Ashman, who played his 100th game for the Blues and collected 42 disposals to be best on ground. The only blemish in his game was his accuracy. He kicked one goal five. Yeah. In round 20, Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, who was number one ticket holder, was booed incessantly during the second half of the North Melbourne Carlton match at Arden Street. The booing continued right up until the moment that Fraser stepped into his limousine and drove away from the ground. <laughs> the Blues easily defeated top of the ladder Kangaroos by 61 points. Jeff Southby, impressive, and Ken Sheldon with five goals. They lost their final two games, but it didn't matter because remarkably, they were in the finals after a tumultuous year. Jezza just picked them up out of the gutter and, and got them moving Absolutely. again. Absolutely. Incredible. Uh, like usually a team a coach leaves yeah. it's upheaval the captain's left yeah yeah that's a huge yeah no issues very interesting uh, so the lead goal kicker at Carlton this year was Rod Galt with 49 Mark McClure just behind him with 40 and the John Nichols medal in 78 went to Trevor Keogh for the second time so there we go moving up the ladder again to third spot and exactly where they're sitting at the moment is Collingwood the mag? Oh no, they're in second. They're in second. Oh, no. I know. It's, I don't like it either. Unbelievable. Yes. Uh, so yeah, Collingwood in third with 15 wins and seven losses, 113.3 percent. Coached by Tommy Hafey and Len Thompson, the new captain. Yes. Uh, debutants include Craig Stewart, Terry Phillip. 
Derek Shaw, no relation to the Shaws, Greg, Whitcro- Greg Whitcroft, Kevin Morris from Richmond, and Tony Shaw. So two Shaws, but only one of their, the yeah. famous Shaws. But obviously Tony's related to Ray. Yes, yes, uh, who you last year, we talked about last year, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Tony was recruited to Collingwood from Reservoir Lakeside. Small midfielder at 170 centimetres who didn't have the natural ability or quality skills of others, but his courage and determination made him a fine rover. Mm. Um, you can't teach courage and determination. No, Jimmy. not at all. It's an attribute, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, interesting fact about Len Thompson's captain as well. Max Richardson was dumped and refused to be his vice. Hey, okay. Mm. Bit of bad blood. Bit of bad. Well, yeah, I guess so. Round one, after a tense first half, the Pies took control in the second quarter to sweep to a seven-goal win. Now, following the opening round, former President Tom Sherron was killed in a car accident. He'd oh, been wow. to the game, so on his way home from Geelong, he was involved in a collision with a truck and smashed into a pole. He died soon after, aged oh, 60. Jeez. The incident cast a pall over Collingwood. Yeah. Their round two demolition of Essendon was off the back of an all-out team effort. Oborn, Stewart with four goals each and solid contributions from Atkinson, Magro and Ray Shaw ensured the Bombers didn't get a sniff. Pies by 67. Then three losses in a row followed. Round six, they took advantage of the wind against the Lions and kept the steady lead throughout to run out 52-point winners. Rene Kink kicked six. And ten minutes before the siren, thousands of kids swarmed onto the ground, only to be kicked off again and then spill on again when the bell went. <laughs> it's bloody kids running on, and I've seen footage of it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's like a tidal wave. One goes, so they all go. They you all can't go, stop yeah, it. exactly. Um, around this time, the Pies acquired former Bulldog captain Laurie Sanderlands, ah, yeah. who came into their team in round seven in a loss to the Blues. He didn't stick around very long, though. Round eight, the Pies trailed the Dogs at three-quarter time by 34 points, which saw Hafey address them with despairing appeals at the break. Whatever he said struck a chord and they came roaring back to life. They kicked eight goals to two to snatch a memorable four-point win. There's a similar story next week against the Tigers at Victoria Park. The Pies trailed at the last break, but another big quarter saw them win by 16. Peter Moore with four goals. Round 10 was an important match against the Saints and 72,000 people came to Waverley to see this game. Um, the Pies made every post a winner. Billy Pickin best on ground in a 34-point win. The round 11 game against the Demons was an easy 10-goal route. Uh, 42 scoring shots to 17 mean the Pies should have won by even more. Yeah, wow. Uh, and Co- Tommy Hafey even registered his disappointment after the match in suggesting they should have won by at least 15 goals. Yeah. Um, Peter Moore and Ray Shaw inspired the Pies against the Bombers the following week in round 13. Around the t- this time, the Pies acquired former Blue Ray Byrne, who was an important acquisition um, for the not- round 14 game where the Pies ended the Hawks' run of eight straight wins with a 10-point victory at Waverley. Ray Shaw with five goals and 24 disposals. Round 15, Collingwood won a game over the Swans in what was described as an afternoon of indecisive football, painfully short of coordination. <laughs> that is hard. The final margin was 20 points. So some of the descriptions of matches on the age are magnificent. Round 17, they did what it needed to do to beat the Lions. Um, Peter Moore kicked seven. Ex-Tiger Kevin Morris was also great. The Pies beat the Dogs in round 19 thanks to scoring bursts at the start of the game and for the first half of the last quarter. In between, they kind of seemed consent to sit back and watch Footscray try to whittle away the deficits. They won by 16. Round 20, a familiar face showed up for the Pies. Uh, Twiggy Dunn, who had retired previous season had yeah. been coaxed out he was best on ground in a stirring Collingwood comeback over the Tigers who were down by as much as 55 points early in the second quarter 14 goals to 4 after half time earned the Pies a 14 point win Picken and Shaw also prominent Ray Shaw that one yep. 
Uh, the highlight of the Pies round 21 win over the Saints was the nine goals five they kicked in the third quarter. Peter Moore was hitting form at the right time of the season. Max Richardson was also good with 28 disposals and four goals. And the final round was an easy win over the Demons side that had nothing to play for. Yeah. yeah. What are you going to do? Can't even, couldn't even get off the bottom by winning. So, <laughs> yeah. Terrible. Uh, so the league goal kicker down at Collingwood was Peter Moore with 57. Ray Shaw just behind him with 49. And the Copeland Trophy in 78 went to Ray Shaw. So moving up that ladder into second place, and not surprising that these two teams are the ones we haven't spoken about. Uh, in second spot, we have Hawthorne with 16 wins and six losses, 117.7%. Uh, coached by David Parkin and captained by Don Scott. Yes, some debutants include Jeff Murray, one of my ex-coaches, Michael McCarthy, or Mick McCarthy. Warren Lee, Nick Wilton, Peter Russo, and two big names, Gary Ayres and Terry Wallace. Yes, so let's start with Gary Ayres there. Originally from Warrigal, he played most of his football in defence, particularly in the back pocket. He was nicknamed Conan by fans in reference to his powerful upper, <laughs> upper body, and he used his body to good effect in uh, contested situations. Great nickname, that, mm. Conan. Uh, and then Terry Wallace, so recruited from VFA club Camberwell and known evocatively as Plough. Terry Wallace was a pack-smashing inside midfielder with excellence, making up for what he lacked in pace with immense grit, determination and physical tenacity. Yeah. All things we know Terry Wallace for, right? Yeah. 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 Or he'll spew up. <laughs> the season started well for the Hawks. Um, in the first game, Michael Monfre Moncrief booted nine majors and the team went on a 15-goal second-half run, securing a 79-point win over the Ds and top spot on the ladder. A win over South by 28 followed in round two with Norm Goss putting in a match-winning performance against his ex-team. Then they took on the Magpies at Victoria Park in round four and won a thriller. Trailing by a point at three-quarter time, the Hawks added 2-4 to 1-7 in the final term. Remarkably, no goals were scored in the last 16 minutes of the match, and it was the behinds that shaped Hawthorne's two-point win. Wow. Um, after a goal from Shane Bond, Phil Carmen had a shot to win the game with a dubious mark over Don Scott, after which he ruffled Scott's hair, um, but was off target. You don't do those Hubris. Things. Yeah. yeah, getcha. Um, Ray Shaw also botched a last-minute shot on goal. Moncrief kicked four. Knights and Hendry were better players for the Hawks there. Uh, round five was a loss to the Lions, but the side rebounded reasonably well by winning their next eight games, beginning with a 31-point win over struggling Carlton, with the Hawks scoring 24 goals, 13, 157, which at the time was their highest ever score against the Blues. Uh, following this, they had an 86-point trouncing of bottom side Footscray and a 29-point win over the Tigers, which put them in second place on the ladder. They travelled to Moorabbin in round nine and they took on the Saints. And after a close three quarters, came away with a convincing 40-point win after a seven-goal final quarter. Next week at Hawthorne, looked in grave danger of kicking away a win against Geelong. At three-quarter time, they had scored four goals 20, the Cats eight goals 11, but they kicked eight goals four, much more accurate to two points in the last quarter to set things right and earn a 35-point win. In round 11, as a match actually quite often talked about, they ventured to Windy Hill and had a 29-point win, but this match is known for the aerial exhibit between Peter Knights and Paul Vanderhaar. Okay. Yeah, this, this, uh, this duel is often referred to as like one of the highlights of the late 70s, early 80s. Oh, okay. And they just, they just spend the whole day taking speckies and, and these massive marks over each other. 
Um, the Hawks rounded out its winning streak with wins over Melbourne by 20 points, South by 21. Uh, they suffered a 10-point loss to Collingwood at Waverley despite five more scoring shots, which riled Parkin and the match committee to the extent that they dropped Moncrief, Hendry and Leon Rice for the big round 15 clash with North Melbourne the following week. Wow. Dropping your spearhead forward is a massive call, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, Peter Russo was brought in for his debut and bobbed up to kick Hawthorne's first two goals. In a close, low-scoring game, the Hawks led by three points at three-quarter time and after North kicked the first two goals of the last stanza, David O'Halloran turned the tide back the Hawks' way when he slammed the ball through the goal so hard he momentarily knocked out the goal umpire. <laughs> uh, when play resumed, goals came quickly to Lee Matthews, Russo and Tony King and the Hawks won the match by 19 points. Tuck... Knight and Goss also very prominent. Uh, the win put the club two games clear on top of the ladder, but the side then suffered a letdown, losing to Fitzroy by a point for the second time that season. Mm. Uh, another loss followed in round 19, this time to Carlton by 24 points. Parkin again reacted by bringing in Gary Ayres for his first game. He kicked three goals as the Hawks struggled to overcome 10th place Footscray by a goal. In round 19, the Hawks blasted Richmond out of the top five, kicking six goals to one in the last quarter. Um... In round 21, we talked about this match before, um, their late season form continued to waver as they took on a Geelong side desperate to cling to their fifth spot. Mm -hmm. Um, Or their spot in the five. Geelong led for most of the game and by 13 points at three-quarter time. Entering time on, it was still 10 points difference and the Hawks looked shot. John Hendry was recalled, so he'd been on the bench and he came on uh, and bounced one through to give the Hawks a sniff. Minutes later, he repeated the act, snapping over his shoulder, and the ball bounced through, despite a desperate lunge in the goal square by cat fullback Gary Malarkey. Malarkey was adamant he had touched the ball. A lot of adamant going and on. And the, the parochial Cardinia Park crowd was certain as well. Of course they were. But the goal stood and the Hawks won by two points as the siren sounded moments later. Rod Austin declared it had definitely been touched, but nothing you can do. They couldn't overturn this decision. No. Uh, this is the Hawks' 400th win as well, so interesting. A good good win to have. Yeah. Uh, another struggling win over Essendon rounded out the home and away season. The Hawks winning by nine points despite an eight-goal opening quarter. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like, going in, coming into finals without that consistency, you'd be, even though you're second and you got the two chances, you'd still be feeling a bit shaky. Yeah. Yeah, we, we see this time and again, don't we? Yep. Teams coming in. You bank those wins early, then you kind of cruise. Yeah, and it's not it's not the what you want coming no, into finals. No, there's sort of the balance, right? You don't want to come in beating lowly teams either and being too overconfident. Yeah, but you want to feel pretty settled yeah. in your routines yes. and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so lead goal kicker at Hawthorne this year was Michael Moncrief with 90, lethal second with 71, and the Peter Crimmins medal in 78 was shared. Between Peter Knights and Lee Matthews. Oh. Yeah. So Peter Knights taking his second and Lee his sixth. Not often that you hear that because there's so many more points in, mm. usually, in a team best. Yes, there first, are, depending on how they did it. Depending yeah. on how they do it, yeah. So, yeah. A draw. Not bad. So apart from, apart from Don Scott, you've got either Peter Knights or Lee Matthews winning every year since 1971. Wow. <laughs> so, not bad. Uh, so taking us up into top spot, and there's only one team left to talk about, Timmy, and that is, of course, the mighty North Melbourne. Not so mighty anymore, but the mighty North Melbourne on in top. the 70s. Oh, now? It's yeah, yeah. Too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
with 16 wins as well, six losses, but a slightly healthier percentage of 120.9. So coached by Barras and captained by Keith Gregg again, the two men at the helm just staying steady. Absolutely. We've got some debutants as well. Uh, we've got Daryl Schimmelbush, brother of Wayne. Mm-hmm. Steve Easton, Roger Polzak. I hope I've said that right. Brendan Burnett, Doug Smith, Glenn Payne, uh, John Law and Ross Glendening. Yeah. Tell us about those two. Lots of, lots of uh, um, debutants coming through. Lots of new recruits. Yeah. So John Law uh, joined... North Melbourne from Strathbogie, uh, he was known for his uncompromising and direct style of play. He was used initially as a forward, but his resolute straight-ahead style was much better suited to a half-back flank. And of course, Ross Glendenning. So after joining East Perth under the father-son rule, Glendenning made his waffle debut on Anzac Day in 1974 against Subiaco and immediately seemed right at home. Solidly built he was extremely quick, could take a grab, and kicked beautifully on both feet. When the VFL came calling, Glendening ultimately opted to join North Melbourne in time for the 77 season, but East Perth refused to clear him. Mm. The Royals' hierarchy felt that, he, they, that Glendening owed them at least one more season, and so after sitting out the game until July, the prodigal son returned to play out the remainder of the year with East Perth. The understanding was that in return for this meagre display of loyalty, he'd be cleared to the ruse in 78, and this is exactly what happened. I think the other thing that helped as well was that Barry Cable went back to Perth and went to that team. And so it was kind of like a deal they did. We'll get Barry Cable back. We'll give you... We'll release yeah, Glenn yeah. Denning. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that helps, definitely. I think there's something there. And this, I still find the whole thing really, as a bit of an aside, like this whole like teams refusing to clear players to move, really fascinating that yeah. they've got this amount of power. Well, it still happens in like the Premier League and places like that. Yeah. Um, all right. So Keith Gregg back from injury as well. He had his. He did his knee. The That's last right. Season. Yes. Um, North took the dogs apart in round one, winning easily by 69 points. Arnold Brightus with seven goals straight. Round two, the Roos completely shut down the Tigers in the third quarter, being a major difference as the Roos kicked 8-5 to take a 64-point lead and eventually run out 73-point winners. Stephen McCann with 5-1. Glenn Denning was also excellent. Round three, the Hawks seemed to have the Kangaroos measure heading in at halftime, but with six goals to two in the third quarter and another four in the last, the Roos won by 25. One of the highlights of this match was the specky taken by... Malcolm Blight. Aye, of course. Um, round four, North Superior kicking for goal and edge in experience earned them a hard-fought win over vastly improved St Kilda by 19. Round five, very famous game as well. The grand final rematch, Collingwood taking on North Melbourne at Arden Street. And North Melbourne decided, what can we do for some pre-game entertainment? What, how can we make this stand out? What can we do? I know, we'll get an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, so, ridden by eight-year-old cheer squad member Sally Wood, a elephant was running around the boundary line at uh, the pre-match. Yeah. Footage is available as Beautiful. well. Beautiful. Ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting game as well. Highly entertaining. The Pies got out to a 25-point lead early, which they held at halftime, um, and still led at three-quarter time until the Roos cracked through in the final quarter, to win by nine points. Phil Baker was excellent with 5-1, as was John Burns with seven straight. 
In round six at Cardinia Park, North couldn't even score in the first quarter against Geelong, who skipped out to a 31-point lead. But with Glenn Denning and Burnett firing, the Roos took the lead by half-time and ran out 22-point winners. Barker with five, Huppets three, Blight two. In this game, Keith Gregg was knocked out by Ray Carr. Round seven, the Roos had a lapse in concentration in the last quarter against the Lions and had Warwick Irwin's late snap been accurate, they would have lost. But it wasn't, and they won by three points. <laughs> uh, round eight, at halftime, the Demons had taken the game right up to the reigning premiers. Um, but then North kicked 15 goals to three from the start of the third quarter to run out 76-point winners. Seven of the third quarter goals came in a quarter of an hour, despite North being without six players who had injury. Keenan put his old side to the sword with a dominant display in the ruck. They were lucky to beat Essendon in round 10 as they led by 35 points at three-quarter time but could only kick one point in the last quarter. The Bombers falling three points short. Uh, Round 11, North put on a big last quarter with eight goals to four against the Swans to earn a 20-point win. Blight was very prominent in this game. Um, Around 12, lost to the Dogs, saw them drop from first to second um, and this was part of a four-game losing streak they had. In a round 16 match with the Pies at Victoria Park, the Roos were dominant after quarter time with 13 goals to four. Their defence, the big reason for their win, Malcolm Blight with six goals here. Round 17, the game against North Melbourne was a cracker uh, for two and a half quarters, and then upstepped Malcolm Blight. Two freakish goals in the space of about two minutes inspired a 16-minute eight-goal spree, which saw them turn an 11-point deficit into a 56-point lead and eventually won by 46 points. Round 18, they kicked up a big score against the Lions to win by 42. Round 19 at Arden Street, it was another Kangaroos blitz. Um, at halftime, the Roos were 15-8 and they held the Demons to a single goal for the rest of the match to rack up their highest ever score in a match, 26 goals, 18-174 in a 113-point win. Malcolm Blight did most of the damage with 8 goals, 5 Almost as much as the whole Demons team. Um, North did enough in the first half of their round 21 match with Essendon to win the game, despite kicking nine goals, five to one, one to half time. And despite only kicking two goals in the last quarter, they won by 26. Blight with four. Melrose also good. And after 22 rounds, the Roos were minor premiers for the first time since 1949. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... All the premiership, all the grand finals they played in, they haven't they been. Haven't be, the they haven't been. They haven't finished on top. They've just been good at the right time of the season. Yep. That's the way you want it to be. You'd yes. rather rather it that way than the other way. So there you go. So lead goal kicker at North this year was of course Blighty with seventy seven, uh, and the Sid Barker Award, you wouldn't be surprised, went to Malcolm Blight as well. Um, talking of Malcolm Blight, let's get to the Brownlow download. Yes. Um, because that was won by... Malcolm Blight. Malcolm Blight. Blight won the 1978 Brownlow by one vote from Peter Knights, with early favourite Gary Wilson of Fitzroy third on 20 votes. The champion North Ruck Rover clinched the medal with the third last vote after Knights had led for most of the 90-minute count. So we're back to a single 3-2-1 vote system, I'm assuming, yes. based on those numbers. Yes. Good. It's only those two seasons Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Um, Blight said, I thought I had a most... Con- I have thought... Blight said, I thought I had a most consistent year, but I really didn't think it would go this far. It's been great. Um, asked of, and there was supposedly rumours of votes leaking as well, because 100 people weren't surprised that Blight won it. Ah. So um, Jack Hamilton, the league manager, was going to look into this. Um, um, he said that Brassy had a huge influence on his career, which started in Adelaide 11 years ago. He learnt more in Melbourne in his first year than he did in six years in Adelaide. Wow. Uh, he attributed his consistency of 78 to his age. I thought I had the most consistent year, but I really didn't think it would be this far. It's been great. 
Um, he's the first person to win both the McGarry medal and the Brownlow. And the second South Australian to win the Brownlow after Bernie Smith of Geelong. Yeah, wow, okay. All right, now just before we get to finals, Coles goals. Okay, it's got to be North. Hawthorne. Oh. 356. Wow, okay. I would have thought North with that percentage and a few massive wins. Yeah. There you go. So let's get us to finals, Charlie. That does get us into the finals. So as always in our strange five-man finals, <laughs> we've got to go through the elimination or the qualifying, all of that. So in our first final, we have... Fifth spot Geelong playing off against fourth spot Carlton to see who gets to hang around. Uh, and that was at VFL Park in front of 57,500 people, Timmy. All right. Well, the Cats were on the back foot before the game. We talked about their Ruckman, David Manson, being suspended already. Uh, two teammates, Kevin Sheen and Paul Jeffries, injured themselves at training. And then pre-game, Michael Turner was a late withdrawal with a cracked rib. Mm. So on the back foot before they even started. Uh, it was Carlton's superior teamwork which enabled them to score a 33-point victory over Geelong. Yeah. The Blues used their skilled hand and foot passing to initiate many attacking moves. Geelong had chances but squandered those with poor kicking around the ground and for goal. Donahue, one of the worst defenders, with one goal five. Uh, it was really two scoring bursts by the Blues that gained them control of the match. The first came in the last 10 minutes of the opening quarter, which was four goals, and a five-minute burst halfway through the third in which three goals were scored put an end to what had been a spirited Geelong comeback. Geelong did actually reduce the leeway to 17 points during the last quarter, but Carlton steadied to run out comfortable winners. Uh, Centre-half forward Mark McClure turned in a match-winning performance with 21 kicks and 13 marks. And this was actually Carlton's first finals win since 1973, ending a record-equaling run of five consecutive finals losses. Yeah, wow. Okay. So final scores were? Final scores were Geelong's 9-18-72, very errant in front of goal, to Carlton's 15-15-105. So taking us into the qualifying final on the same day at the MCG in front of just a squeak under 80,000 people was Collingwood versus Hawthorne. Uh, And, yeah, a high-scoring affair. Well, the Hawks won every quarter. Yep. To run out 54-point winners in this, Moncrief bagged eight goals and Russo four, whilst Hawk captain Don Scott was undisputably best on ground. Al Martello played his 200th game at the age of 25 years and 359 days, which is up there with the records. Yeah. And what do you think the media started saying about Collingwood? Collie Wobbles. Collie Wobbles. Of course. Yeah. It's a big score there by the Hawks as well. 23 goals, 16, 154. Yes, to Collingwood's 14, 14, 98. So does Collingwood have to go back and face Carlton uh, and Hawthorne are now up against the minor premiers in North Melbourne. So that first game, Collingwood-Carlton at the G the week after in front of 91,933 people and she was a nail-biter. Yeah, it was close, wasn't it? Uh, In this game, the Blues came in as favourites after two big wins against them in the year, Mm -hmm. um, as well as the players coming off that loss to the Hawks the week before. But a good old-fashioned, hard-bumping, fierce tackling and intense pressure football from Collingwood saw them win by 15 points. Carlton's clever small forwards were continually harassed and not able to break clear with the usual regularity. Collingwood did most of the running and used the better teamwork for most of the match. Centre-half forward Bill Pickin was the driving force behind the Pies' great victory. He completely eclipsed Mark McClure and sent, Geelong, sent Collingwood into attack with long and clearing dashes. His 22 kicks, 8 marks and 6 hand passes were an outstanding contribution to the win. Len Thompson controlled the game in the middle. Um, 
the Pies led by 19 points at three-quarter time, 13 at half-time, and four at three-quarter time. In the last quarter, Collingwood's all-round strength proved too much for Carlton. They quickly opened up a five-goal advantage. The Blues battled the game right out and reduced the leeway in the final moments, uh, but were no match for a determined Collingwood. Yeah. So Collingwood running out 15, 18, 108 to Carlton's 13, 15, 93. Uh, and that same day at VFL Park, uh, in front of just under 50,000, uh, we had Hawthorne, North Melbourne, to see who is going to get straight through to the grand final. And look, an, another close one. It was. Look, Lee Matthews was supreme as the Hawks won through to a grand final, beating North Melbourne by 14 points in the second semi final. O'Halloran had been minding North Danger Man Arnold Brightus um, when he went down with a serious knee injury. Uh, McCarthy was moved to Brightus, but when he became too damaging, it was Kelvin Moore who went to him and did the job. The Hawks built a three goal lead early in the game and maintained it throughout, but it wasn't a convincing win by any means. Moncrief kicked another four, and along with Matthews, Knights, Tuck were named as Hawthorne's best. Also in this game, Brett Crosswell broke his arm, and Crackers Keenan was reported and suspended for two weeks for striking Don Scott. Um, and this is there's footage of this around where he kind of he whacks him and then he pretends his back's hurt. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Great footage. Love that. Love that. So yeah, as you just said, Hawthorne ran out uh, fourteen point women, winners, twelve fifteen eighty seven to North Melbourne's ten thirteen seventy three. So the prelim has North Melbourne uh, going up against Collingwood to see who is going to meet Hawthorne in that grand final. Uh, so at Waverley, in front of seventy three thousand three hundred fifty four people, what happened? Well, pre game. <laughs> Um, some guests at this game with Alan Aylett were Her Royal Highness Princess Alexandra and her husband, Mr Angus Ogilvy, as well as Governor Henry Winnicky. Before the Royals arrived, the Victorian Police Special Squad rocked up dressed in battle gear. The police believed that a bomb had been placed in the VRP seats in the VFL grandstand. Jeez. They gave the old clear and the, uh, the Royals could come in and the match could start. Nice. Um, from the opening bounce, the Roos controlled this game. They jumped out to an early lead, and the Pies spent the rest of the game trying to catch up. Uh, Phil Carmen again upset proceedings when he broke teammate Ronnie Weemouth's nose and cheekbone with an accidental punch of the ball. Um, in the third quarter, the Pies got within eight points, but they Roos steadied to run out 12-point winners. Keith Gregg was superb, keeping Phil Carmen quiet, and Montgomery, Glendening, and Stan Ells were also impressive. Um... And yeah, there'll be a bit of fallout from the Pies with this and, and they'll, they'll move forward trying to change things up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 12-point winners there, North Melbourne. 12-12 to 14-12. So North, one week later after, get, after getting beaten by Hawthorne, meet them again in the grand final at the MCG in front of 101,704 people, Timmy. Well, and this is the fifth successive year where North Melbourne and Hawthorne have played twice in a final series. Yeah, wow. And for the third time in four years, they're in a grand final. Yeah. Um, O'Halloran became the first Hawthorne player to play every game of the season but missed the grand final. Um, he was replaced by Robert Dippier Domenico. Ah, Dipper. Beautiful. So let's... Uh, let's interview that grand final captain, yeah, shall well, we? I, let, let's try and get on to Peter Knights again because I know Don Scott wasn't really happy to talk to us last time. That's right. So, yes. Uh, let's hope. I, That's I, I've teed it up that hopefully Peter Knights is the one who picks it up. I not hope Don so. Scott. We'll see. All right. Ah, uh, Peter. Great. Uh, thank you for talking to us again. So let's get started. Firstly, we saw you take a small fall while you were celebrating today's win. You feeling okay? Yeah, yeah. All good, fellas. 
I just caught up in the celebrations. I lost my footy, but yeah, nothing to worry about. Now you did cop a small knock in the fight in that final quarter. You're not suffering any concussion? No, not that I know of. Doc Ferguson had a quick look at me. I, I think I'm all good. Now, before we get too stuck into the success of today, we quickly want to touch on the new coach at Hawthorne. Can you tell us a bit about David Parker? Yeah, sure. sure. Uh, he had an incredibly difficult job in front of him when Kennedy left, but yeah, Parkin's ahead of his time in ways. He, he brought significant changes to the game by introducing preparation strategies. Uh, he made some more professional outfits. He brought in things like video analysis and stats. You know, he made us eat healthy, lots of different types of training. Like, we really embraced it. So quite different from John Kennedy then. Uh, make no mistake, Parkin was very much of the Kennedy era. But with his teaching background, started bringing in more professionalism on and off the field. It took us to another level. So, is he building on that legacy that Kennedy left? Oh, absolutely. Well, in essence, Parkin turned us into the best prepared and most skilled team in the competition. Well, well while adding new blood with the likes of, you know, Robert DiBiziamitico, Rodney Eade, Terry Wallace. They gave us more depth. So it was another solid season from the Hawks. You've been very consistent for the last four seasons. You finished second on the ladder. You had good, strong wins over the Pies and the Kangaroos in the first two finals. Thanks, yeah. We, we have a good experience group together. It was really pleasing to finish another home and away season near the top of the ladder. Tell us, what is it about Hawthorne and North Melbourne? We're very evenly matched in almost every position. Uh, not, not even the sports writers could pick a winner between us. When two sides are that close, the right moves at the right time can really tip the scales. Now we heard David Parkin was a bit left of centre with his preparations for the big game this week. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Parko was. He, uh, he decided to simulate the starting time of the grand final and allow training to take in the 100 minutes of the game in daylight. So their regular Thursday night's training, which always starts at 5, was changed to 2, I think it was. Uh, this is typical of his thinking. He's always searching for an edge. Do you think it worked? Yeah, well, I think so. The intensity of our training had players bouncing off each other as we all got caught up in grand final fever. Now before the game had even started, the Hawks pulled a fast one on the ruse by playing uh, Robert Dippier Domenico on the field rather than on the bench where he was supposed to be. Yeah, we certainly made the right move when we switched 30 or Dipper from the bench onto guard one of North Stars in uh, Anthony Brightus. He really stamped himself as a future star today. What was the atmosphere around the ground at the start of the game like? Yeah, I remember running onto the field, seeing balloons everywhere, being in front of uh, what seemed like hundreds of thousands of people. So it was a perfect start for the Hawks, wasn't it, with Michael Moncrief kicking two really quick goals to start the game? Yeah, the roar of the crowd's still ringing in my ears now. But for the two goals he booted against Glendening to give us that flying start, it was, it was amazing. And Martello was the other one who really got us going early. And a great first quarter, and you seem to have fair control of the game, but you can never quite relax when playing a Barassi coach team, can you? Well, we led by four goals at quarter time. But then Phil Baker brought them right back into the game. Yeah, well, the snake was running hot. But, uh, he kicked four goals before half-time. Yeah, he, he'd also taken a huge hanger over the top of Ian Patton. And, uh, I think it was Calvin Moore. Now, what do you put that second quarter slump down to? We'd stopped talking and running, and then Parkin snapped us out of it at half-time. He made some moves. Moore was moved into uh, Baker and decided to play him from behind. I think his aim was to try to limit his opportunities. Your second half was pretty impressive. Yep, yeah, yeah, Lee Matthews sparked a third quarter blitz. We, I think we led the final change by about 22 points. And it seemed that Dipper had won the battle against Brightus as well, with Barassi taking him off the ground. Yeah, it was a big win. I think around the time he moved Malcolm Blight as well, and Jeff Ablett was able to get clear of Schimmelbush and kick a fantastic running goal. It felt like everyone was getting in on the action. 
You led by 22 points at three-quarter time. Probably not enough to get comfortable with, though, was it? Oh, certainly not. So the last quarter was critical for us. We had the weather five minutes of continuous kangaroo attacks. Yeah, but Calvin Moore was crucial. Two big spoils by him really inspired us. Yeah, and the game was still up for grabs. No, you never underestimate a team coached by Barassi. It wasn't until Moncrief took a big mark and kicked his fourth that we, we started to pull away. Peter, tell us more about your role in the last quarter. Well, as I think I said before, I was knocked out early that last quarter and our coaches sent me to the forward pocket to recover. It was goal for goal, I tell you, that last quarter. North under Barassi played a desperate style of football and clawed their way back into the game. Yeah, it was a ding-dong go all day. But luckily I managed to kick two goals to help us move along. And North just kept on coming, didn't they? Yeah, boy, was it a relief to hear the final siren with the Hawks three goals up. I'm dead tired now, but uh, wonderfully elated. Now, it seemed like everyone was just really enjoying the moment, enjoying being the newly crowned premiers. Our spirit was wonderful. Our spirit was terrific. Our spirit was terrific. We couldn't have borne to lose. And when Scotty brandished the cup, well, there was a moment to cherish. And all that hard work, all that training throughout the year, with the change of coach, it all led up to that final siren today. Oh, it's all been worth it, every minute of it. We wanted that flag for David and the club. The boys played it right out. And you must feel proud that you've got David Park in his first flag. Oh, absolutely. I've got nothing but respect and admiration for the job he's done for us. It, I was just, it was his professional approach to coaching that got us going, really. Uh, we also should mention, though, that it's not just David Parkin's first flag as coach. There's also a lot of other first-time Premiership players. Yeah, look, while our big-name players all did well, the great display by our younger brigade gave notice today. The Hawks are going to be a top team for years to come, I think. Could you give us a best on ground today, Peter? Yeah, the people are saying Bertie, uh, Robert, Robert Dippier Domenico has been named best on ground. Oh, I think his prize is a dozen bottles of Ace Lager and a pewter mug or something like that. Be good if he could have a proper medal for the ground, best on ground in the grand final, wouldn't it? His job on Arnold Brightus was was absolutely amazing. Uh, Brightus had a single-handedly torn us apart in the second semi, and he kicked three crucial goals in North. I think the prelim last week as well. So yeah. And your year is far from over, is it? Is, your year is far from over, is it, Peter? No, oh, not even close. I'm off to Perth with the Victorian team next week, and then I'm heading to Ireland to play for Australia in a few games against Ireland with the Galahs. Well, good luck today, mate. Hope the rest of the year goes well. Yeah, today was a highlight. The rest is just a bonus. <laughs> but thanks, lads. Right, so some stats from that game. Goals, we've got Hawthorne, Lee Matthews 4, Moncrief 4, Don Scott 3, Peter Knights 2, one each to Jeff Ablett, Rodney E, John Hendry, El Martello and Peter Murname. Uh, for North, we've got Phil Baker with six, uh, Boys with two, Brightest two, Hubbats two, Doug Smith two, Graham Melrose one. Best for the Hawks were Rocket Ede, Dipper, Lee Matthews, Maddie, uh, Matthew, Matthew Knights, Peter Knights, Michael Tuck, Don Scott. <laughs> nice. You'd be so disappointed as North Melbourne. You would. Because like... The one season they finish on top. Yeah, they finish on top. They play a better game in this game than they did in the semi against Hawthorne as well. I mean, they've kicked another five goals, but Hawthorne have also kicked another five goals. So the, the scoreline is almost exactly the same. Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. It's just sli- yeah, slightly more, but yeah, unbelievable. Well, a fun, um, a fun fact about North Melbourne is that all the premierships they've won... They've never finished the season on top. They've never finished the season on yeah. top, yeah. Anytime they finish on top, they, they haven't won it. <laughs> um, and I, I think 1978 seems to be the forgotten flag of the 70s as well. Mm. 
because every everything else kind of has something. Whereas seventy eight kind of gets lumped with seventy six. I feel. Yep. But seventy six is like Crimo's flag. Yeah, yep, yep. Seventy seven's the draw. Seventy nine's the the boundary line. Harms back to Sheldon. It's the goal. Like it's just, it's kind of the forgotten premiership. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, it does feel it does feel a bit that way, doesn't it? And it, well, I guess there's a bit of sameness about it, right? Like it's a it's North a Melbourne, North, North Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah. Yep. So, th- and this kind of, I guess, marks the end of that rivalry in some ways. So, between '74 and '78, they played 20 times, including 10 finals and three grand finals. Huge. Um, the Hawks won 12 of those. North eight. And I guess the grand final wise, we've got two to one. Um, and also, they played in the 1976 Willis Cup grand final. So they're, they're playing yeah, in that other competition. Other counts, so they yeah. just, they must know each other so well. Um, all right, some other things really quickly to wrap up as well. Uh, there was a rematch of the State of Origin from 77 mm-hmm. with uh, the Vicks beating WA by 14 points. Uh, um, getting that bit of that pride back. Yep. Yeah, the Vicks were coached by Barassi. Templeton kicked six and Peter Knights won the Simpson medal for best on ground. Um, other results from the league, we got reserves. We've got North Melbourne beating Hawthorne. We've got uh, in the reserves, we've got Carlton defeating Collingwood in the under-19s and the McClellan Trophy went to North Melbourne. Had to, right? Yep. yep. Um, so let's wrap this up, Charlie. Let's do it. So the Coleman medal, Timmy, was won by Kelvin Templeton. Yes. Footscray with uh, 118 yeah. goals. Back to some Huge. big numbers. Yeah, big numbers. And the Brownlow, as we mentioned, was won by... Mal- Malcolm Blight of Malcolm North Blight Melbourne. of North Melbourne. As you've just mentioned, we had North winning the Reserves Premiership. Uh, anything else? Um, Wooden Spoon. Wooden Spoon was the Demons, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, most points was kicked by Kelvin Templeton as well. He kicked 65 behinds. <laughs> Rookie of the Year. Terry Dylan. Wallace. Ah, Hawthorne, yeah. Had a great season. Um, mark of the year was Phil Baker of North Melbourne. His mark in the grand final adjudged retrospectively as the best mark. Nice. Goal of the year was also Phil Baker of North Melbourne, apparently. Wow, okay. Yes. Um, premiership list as of 1978. We've got Collingwood with 13, Essendon 12, Melbourne 12, Carlton 11, Richmond 9, Fitzroy 8, Geelong 6, Hawthorne 4. Really climbing that ladder now. South 3, North 2, Footscray 1, St Kilda 1. Would you like to give us a best name as well, Charlie? I certainly would. Okay. Um, it's got to be between... Mordecai Bromberg, <laughs> Robert Gronewagen, and Michael Redenbach. And I feel like Mordecai Bromberg. Yeah, it's a great has, name. It's a great it's name. It's a great name. Um, some retirees as well as we finish off. We've got Twiggy Dunn at Collingwood, 213 games, 238 goals. Wayne Richardson of Collingwood, 277 games. Laurie Sandilands, Footscray, and Tiny Mercolin, <laughs> 164 games. Peter Bedford, South Melbourne and Carlton, 186 games. John Scarlett, from Geelong and South Melbourne, 212 games. But putting his legacy there at Geelong, some leave the glory. Robin Close of Essendon, 147 games. Peter Walsh of Footscray, 165 games. Renato Serafini, Fitzroy and Carlton, 88 games, and a great name. Rex Hunt, Richmond at Geelong and St Kilda, 202 games, 276 goals, two flags. And Georgie Young of St Kilda, 108 games, 284 goals. He's headed back to WA. But that rounds out the 1978 season, Charlie. There we go. We're almost into the 80s, Timmy. It's unbelievable, isn't it? it well, is. that's it's been a, another another great year. Looking forward to a few more coming our way. And again, it was so nice uh, getting that 
email from somebody with a little bit of an anecdote of something that, you know, we never hear about. So please, if you've got a story. family story or something, you know, so you've heard something from a grandfather yep. or a father, please let us know. Because we, we love those, those little moments that, you know, don't often get talked about. The big moments are always are written in history, but those little like things Like the elephant. Aren't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it'll be lovely. Uh, and uh, looking forward to getting stuck into 79. Hooroo. To find out more about the kick to kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.